Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, today's reading will be done in two parts, and it is from Daniel chapter 2. And our first section of the reading will be from verse 1 through to verse 24. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive gifts from me and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. I am certain you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king, the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king was, had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Going to continue our reading from verse 25. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpreted? 
that a wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Negu the letter what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there stood before you a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to you, to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid honour to honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Thank you very much to all our readers. Well done. It's uh, a bit of fun to do a narrative like that. If I haven't met you, my name's Pete Stacey. It's great to be here this morning. I think it's fair to say, we're only two chapters in, 
But in many ways, we'd all like to be a bit more like Daniel. Uh, Not captives being brainwashed in a foreign land, but his character and his ability and his favour with God. Uh, Last week, we marvelled at how God revealed himself to a ruler of a godless nation through the godly witness of his servants while they are in exile. I'd just love to be a more godly witness myself, and you'd probably be similar. So as we track through this next chapter, let's ask Daniel's God to help us. Let's pray. God of heaven, you are Daniel's God, and you are our God too. You're the great God who rules over all nations, all kings and rulers, all events on earth and in the heavens, and your rule will endure forever. Lord, you've given us your word so that we can be equipped with everything we need to know you, to live a godly life in a godless world. Lord, please give us wisdom to understand your word now and the resolve to obey it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Almost parents of small children are familiar with sleep deprivation. No matter how worthy the cause, the lack of sleep can make us feel miserable, irritable, Low in energy, short in patience, and just generally out of sorts. All those parents who have like young kids going, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, he was sleep deprived. But his exhaustion wasn't for naughty children or sleepless children, uh, or, or even just a lack of sleep per se, but from the sinister nature of the dreams he was having. It was so troubling to his mind. Uh, now, this king, you know, the man in control, he saw help. He went to the counsellors, his wise men. And his goal, verse 3, I want to know what it means. It's troubling him. No problem, the astrologers had books that gave all kinds of interpretations for all kinds of dreams. Tell us and we'll check it out for you and get back to you. No problem at all, that's kind of their response. Actually, they've got a big problem. The king wanted them to tell him the dream. And then explain it. As verse 5 says, that's what he had firmly decided. Similar language to Daniel back in chapter 1, when he resolved in his heart not to eat the royal food. Nothing was going to change the king's mind on this issue. He pressed his point with excessive coercion. You'll be cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. And then he invited a response with excessive bribery. Give us some gifts and rewards and great honour. Now they can't believe the situation. And in verse 8 and 9, they try to buy time, but King Nebuchadnezzar only gets more and more angry. He doesn't want any cheesy newspaper horoscope. He wants to know the truth. And he figures he'll get the truth from anyone who can first tell him what he actually dreamt. It's a hopeless situation. They know it's impossible. Verse 10. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Then they accuse him of being unreasonable. I mean, you might as well if you're about to die anyway. (laughs) No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing. Fair crack crack of the whip. Come on, give us a break. And they recognise and admit the serious limitations of their own pagan religion. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. And at this point, we can see how well this detail 
sets up for a stark contrast between the gods of Babylon, who are really no help at all, and the one true God of heaven who helps and saves his people. And of course, as Christians, we can see the irony of that bit. You know, the gods don't live among humans. Well, a few centuries later, as we know, God did live among humans in the person of Jesus Christ. Their negotiation failed miserably. Verse 12, This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And they were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. What a desperate situation. Daniel and his friends, they're literally on death row. Uh, We've now kind of set the scene for what happens next. But let's look closely at how Daniel responds. There's some really important things that we can learn from. In verse 14, we see that first of all, Daniel spoke to Arioch with wisdom and tact. Now, if you're a note taker, point one here is... Uh, Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Daniel had every reason to fear King Nebuchadnezzar, but he knew who was really in control over the kings of the earth. He knew uh, where his ultimate allegiance lay. He feared God above Nebuchadnezzar. Now put yourself in his shoes for a moment though. I mean, wouldn't you freak out? blow a fuse, have a kind of a shouting match perhaps? Or would you just go silent trying to somehow fly under the radar? Or would you engage carefully, constructively, with tact and wisdom? Friends, how many opportunities have we blown by our blustering heavy-handedness instead of speaking with wisdom and tact? Or by forgetting to take the fruit of the Spirit with us the moment we spring into action or have to handle some kind of conflict. Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. (coughs) Point two, Daniel acted decisively. Godliness and strategic action are friends. Now I'll confess, I have been known to say uh, that savvy doesn't equal godly. Um, and maybe that's just my you know, pitiful excuse because I don't feel very savvy. <laughs> but it's clear here that they're not mutually exclusive either. In fact, savvy, tactful, strategic, diplomatic, whatever you want to call it, it is godly when the motive is godly. Daniel gets the details and takes immediate action by going to the king. His godliness isn't replaced by strategic action, his godliness is actually on display through his strategic action. Spirituality and practicality are not meant to be opponents, they're actually meant to be friends. Thirdly, Daniel got the support of praying friends. How good is this? Notice verse 17. He explained the matter to his friends. There is great strength to be found when we share our lives in true fellowship with other believers. That's what connect groups are all about. Where we study the Bible together, but we share our lives and see how the Bible comes to bear on our lives and all kinds of issues. And we can pray for one another and spur each other on. Now I posted uh, a couple of days ago, it was two years since my wife Judy died. 
But I can say just what an incredible strength I drew from all of you here in church and from my, my connect group in particular and the many people who said they were praying for us through that time. Wonderful, wonderful support. Uh, and i found that uh, in the course of time, that kind of fellowship is often tested by adversity. But it's also strengthened and deepened by adversity. Daniel and his mates, they sure had adversity here today. They had no hope without God. Ever been there? Ever been at the mercy of God like an abseiler just hanging onto their rope? We're just like hanging on to God in earnest prayer. Nowhere else to turn. Oswald Chambers once said, Prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Too often we treat prayer as an optional supplement rather than a daily meal. And our faith is weak and malnourished as a result. Verse 23 highlights the joy of praying. Friends, I love how uh, Daniel words this. He says, in praise to God, he says, You made known to me what we asked of you. It's fabulous. In his great mercy, God answered their prayers. And Daniel, um, this is point four, Daniel then responds with praise. Daniel just explodes with this jubilant hymn of praise. It's written like a poem there uh, in the NIV version. Anyway, he's reminding himself and he's reminding others of exactly who he's praying to, who is on his side. He starts with like the Lord's Prayer, you know, uh, hallowed be your name. He, he begins, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Never wondered what his name is. Is referring to? We don't kind of use that language ourselves much these days. Well, the rest of the prayer really unpacks it for us. God's name stands for who he is and what he has done. His person and work, if you want the theological language. And look at this little poem or song. Daniel praises God for his wisdom, his power, his generosity, his sovereign rule, his providence that he is all-knowing and all-seeing, and that he cares for and sustains all who call on his name. We do well, friends, to remind ourselves of who's on our side, who we're praying to. After his prayer, Daniel goes back to point two, decisive action. Uh, His prayer did not remove the need to act, but it released him to act. And so he went to Ariok with three clear instructions. Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will interpret the dream. What a gutsy action by Daniel. And actually, I think it's a really gutsy action by Ariok as well. Because if Daniel turned out to be a fake, Ariok's neck would be on the block as well. Quick smart. And now for the fifth point. Daniel was humble. Daniel was humble. I uh, complimented a friend once. I just recognised, I just really admired what they were doing. And I complimented him, and he said this. He said, thanks, God has given me a gift in that area. It was so simple, and yet so profound. He accepted my compliment. How often did someone compliment us, and you say, oh, no, I'm not really, I'm not really. It's like you're just chopping off their compliment. Or we get so awkward, we might actually agree with them, but we just don't know how to... 
He accepted my compliment and gave thanks immediately to God who had given him the gift. It was so fabulous. His life reflected God's glory to me in the way he served with, with his gift. And that's why I thanked him. When I gave him the compliment, he was so quick to reflect that glory straight back to God. Friends, how can we both reflect God's glory by the way we serve with the gifts that he's given us and reflect people's praise when it comes back to God? Look at how Daniel does it. Not like Ariok in verse 25, I have found a man who can tell the king what his dream means. <laughs> I'm so good, it's all my doing. Here's a chance to carry favour with the king, maybe get a promotion. Look at Daniel in verse 27 to 29. He's the central figure in this whole story, and yet he manages to explain the whole situation without referring to himself once. It's astonishing. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. And then he points, Daniel points to the real hero. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. It's fantastic, isn't it? Daniel helps the king and us see that actually Daniel's not the main character in this story. God is. It's all about God. You know, he could have said, hey, listen to me as I explain your dream, O king. He could have used his opportunity just to slam the astrologers for their fake religion and false god. But no. Daniel lived to give glory to God and to benefit others. Such a, such a good pattern. See verse 30, as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me, uh, so has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, there's humility right there, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation. He's thinking of others, how they will benefit through hearing God's word. How can we use our gifts to point to God's greatness and benefit others? C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And let's not forget uh, Proverbs 3.34, which is quoted a number of times in the New Testament also, which warns us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, it's kind of turning into a bit of a master class on uh, uh, crisis, uh, handling a crisis. Five foundations for life when the earth moves under your feet. Um, of course, it's only a matter of time before something like this happens to all of us, to some extent, when we're hit by the tremors of life at home, school, uni, uh, in the workplace, uh, on the sporting field, in the surf, wherever it might be. Life can change in a flash. And when it does, oh, that we would be wise and tactful when we speak, fearing God more than people, that we would have godliness and courage to act that we would seek the support of godly friends and together commit to pray. Take it all to the Lord. That we would praise our God by doing so, reminding ourselves who it is that saves us. And that we would see God work. And as we do, that we would be humble and give Him the glory and the thanks. And then from here to the end, Daniel explains the dream to the king and is rewarded. And 
I only want to really highlight a couple of things in this second part of the chapter. One of the most startling things is that God chose to reveal his plans for the future to who? A pagan idol worshipper king. And not only that, he was king who's just conquered God's people. How bizarre. Often we think that the only way God can work is through his own people. Have we forgotten that God actually rules over all the world? And all the rulers of the world? Daniel prayed back in verse 21. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and raises others up. We do well to remember that God is God of all. And that's precisely the lesson King Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn too. As Daniel describes this statue in vivid detail in verses 31 to 35, King Nebuchadnezzar's mouth must have been you know, hanging on the floor. Imagine if you had a bad dream and someone came and retold it to you in every single detail. Like seriously, you'd be just like staggered. This is one of those absolute jaw-drop moments. Okay, Daniel, you've really got my attention now. Uh, the burning question is, of course, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, let me just say at this point that some people have really specific interpretations for this dream. Yeah, down to dates and kings and people and you know, all the details. Um, there's actually several different versions of interpretation, and they don't all agree. So what do we do then? Well, I think we need to not get caught up on, on the possible details and, and, and speculation. It may be clever, it may be really well informed and based in historical events, but if it's not clearly stated in the text of God's Word, it's still speculation, just very clever speculation. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So what's the plain thing here? Look at the end of verse 38. It's a personal message for Nebuchadnezzar. You are that head of God. Nebuchadnezzar's head is in overdrive right now. He's, he's already heard verse 35. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. He, he now realises the kingdom coming that will crush all earthly kingdoms. And verse 44 says that it will endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar realises, I'm a goner. When will this happen? How will it happen? And tell me, who is this rock that struck the statue and then be, became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth? Who is it? Friends, living this side of the ministry, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know the answer. We know whom God has chosen as King of the world. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And being a part of His kingdom that will endure forever relies entirely on how we personally respond to Jesus. And please, if, if you're not sure where you're at with Jesus this morning, can I encourage you to talk to me afterwards, talk to someone that you know is a Christian. Nothing is more important than that. I heard a story uh, many years ago, a young employee came to the director 
uh, of the BBC, who was a Christian, keen Christian, and he suggested that they, the young fellow suggested that they remove all religious broadcasts on their radio and television. Stop, you know, perpetuating the mess of an old-fashioned religion that no one's really interested in anymore. The director calmly replied, Be assured, young man, the Church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. <laughs> Do you understand that? He understood Daniel chapter 2. Friends, it may not be obvious to us sitting here this morning, but every corporation, every government, every economical or military power, uh, every nation, every ideology, all will bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. China, America, Russia, North Korea, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, Australia, and every other nation on earth will bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the kingdoms out there. Kingdom in here and up here. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. I think I've got a screen. Thank you. Will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the dream is all about. And friends, we better make sure we are ready. At the end, King Nebuchadnezzar gets all religious, but his heart is largely unchanged. And the next few chapters reveal how foolish that kind of response is. The appearance, the appearance of religion without any real response to King Jesus. As for Daniel, he gets promoted and with wisdom and tact, again, uh, requests the company of his three praying friends and then strategically places himself in the royal court. Very clever. Uh, it's those five godly characteristics that we're seeing again in him. And the question I want to ask is, what will we do when the pressure's on? When the crisis hits? When the earth tremble, trembles under our feet? How will we respond? You know, Daniel is a good example for us. But he's not a perfect example. If we want to learn one thing, could learn those five things. But if there's one thing that is more important than those five, it is this. He trusted in God alone for salvation and so must we. So the most important question is, what is your response to King Jesus? Friends, let's pray. Gracious Father, help us remember that now we see dimly as in a foggy mirror. But then... Before you, we will see you clearly. In the meantime, help us to trust your vision and to live in light of the certainty of your everlasting rule. Please, by your Spirit, transform our minds, purify our hearts, and mould our behaviour that we may truly live for you. For your glory and the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.